Hello and welcome to episode 26 of That 60s Recording Podcast, the podcast that has conversations inspired by the golden era of recording. Okay, so uh, not a huge amount to report before we get into to this episode. Um, March was a great month for the podcast. We've reached, uh, we got 2,000 downloads in March, which is incredible. Um, that's a huge milestone. Um, 2,000 2, downloads within the month of, month of March, that is. <laughs> um, so yeah, very proud of that. Thank you all for supporting it. Um, okay, so this episode is a conversation with a mastering engineer, friend of mine from Leeds called Ben Pike. Um, and he has a mastering studio called Rare Tone Mastering. And he is very interested and influenced by uh, a 60s sort of mentality towards recording uh, in a very similar to, way to me, actually. We've worked together. Ben's also a producer. And we've worked together um, on stuff he was producing for other artists where I've played drums for him. Um, really enjoyed the way that he works. And he has taken that sort of way into the way he masters. Um, and he's got some absolutely ridiculous equipment. <laughs> I mean, it would... Uh, it's just insane. I mean, literally jaw-droppingly good equipment, which you'll hear about. Um, it's He sort of prides himself on being... It's hard to say that anything's all analog, isn't it? Because ultimately it it goes into a computer at the end. But it's, uh, the chain he's got is uh, predominantly an, an analog chain, which is why I thought it'd be interesting to hear from him. Um, and also the, the mastering process is a bit of an enigma, really, to a lot of people. And it's I suppose you could say it's questionable whether it's relevant or, or the, the question is how relevant is it these days, perhaps? Um, and that's something that... I'm interested in and uh, you know I'm really pleased that I was able to talk through that with Ben and I still personally think that mastering has a place um, and it's definitely sort of geared towards that mixing um, it's difficult to put your finger on the precise words for it really but you're, you're mixing below a, a level and letting the mastering engineer have the final the final say of you know just checking over everything making sure there's no frequencies that are, are doing anything nasty and all that kind of stuff and you know I still think that that's a relevant technique and I hope that um you know I I would assume that a lot of the people that listen to this agree so anyway with that in mind I think you'll really enjoy this conversation with Ben um so we'll just dive straight into it enjoy here we go So I'm very happy today to be joined by Ben Pike of Rare Tone Mastering. Um, thanks so much for coming to speak to me, Ben. Oh, no problems. Happy to be here. Um, so we know each other through just the, the music scene in Leeds in general, I think. Um, yeah. You've been around as a, a songwriter and sort of a, how would you describe it, Americana artist for a while. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, singer-songwriter. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, singer, songwriter, musician, a bit of session musician type thing in Leeds, yeah. And you, um, so we both run nights on uh, the same street in Leeds called Lane. <laughs> um, so you, <laughs> yeah. you, uh, 
you have a, I mean, it feels like an age away now, doesn't it? But you run an Americana night, don't you? Yeah. Um, I mean, it would be over a year ago that we did the last one. Un, un, unbeknownst to us at the time, we, we did it. It was last February. Um, madness, isn't it? How yeah. And, uh, yeah, very odd. And you've come and played um, played on uh, on my night. <laughs> so that yeah. I, I run a, a night where I get sort of session guys in Leeds to come and play some cool songs together and um, and you've come and played on my night. So I guess that's how we know each other. And now you're running Rare Tone Mastering, um, an analog mastering studio uh, based in Leeds. Um, and uh, as well as that, I think you do some production and um, work with, not that it's a, a jack of all trades approach, but you do a lot of things involved in music, not just mastering, don't you? Um, yeah, yeah. I'm, I guess primarily... Uh, playing live and then and then mastering that's that's the two main main things but um because of my background in in sub studio recording and mixing and production i do occasionally record sort of friends um and do the odd ep or album for sort of pals uh which which is cool um something i want to ask which is uh, it feels like a, a novice question, um, but I think it's a question that a lot of people will want to know the answer to. Is in in your words, what is mastering? How would you describe um, like the, the mastering process and what it does? How does how does it elevate it? Because in in my head, it's like magic fairy dust. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was sort of reading this question, and I, I knew it would be like the most <laughs> obvious one to ask. I guess it's a bit like asking what is cooking or, <laughs> or like what is sport or something like that. It, it's really, um, uh, yeah, it really depends on um, the material that comes through. But but basically um, the mastering process is preparing the, the final mixes of, of a song um, for for the sort of the outside world if you will so making sure that the mixes that have been been done in the studio are going to sound really good when they're played on a radio on a home some home speakers in the car on a nowadays on a small phone or a bluetooth speaker and um, so it's trying to make sure that the music send me translates really well um to to the rest of the world how do you um does that infringe on the mix process at all how how does that sort of work in terms of um you know obviously we'll we'll get onto gear but you've got a lot of nice eqs and nice compressors and limiters and things and how does what you do differ from sort of the tail end of the mix process yeah, it's a good question. And yeah, they, they can sort of overlap as well. So sometimes people might send me something uh, and I'll listen to it and I'll go, um, actually, I think if we go step backwards to the mix and you just tweak something here, for instance, if you can just bring this bass down a little bit in your mix, I can then make that sound better when I process it at the mastering stage. So yeah, there is a little bit of overlap between the, the finishing of the mix and the starting of the mastering sometimes um that's interesting so do you think that 
as a as a master in engineer, it's sort of an opportunity to offer fresh ears on something that perhaps you've not been involved with the process. Um, with. Yeah, yeah, that that's sort of the perfect way to to put it. Actually, yeah, it's it's a set of yeah um, objective is you sort of hear something fresh you've not been in the process for days or weeks or months even um and i think when you come to a project like that um with no previous uh involvement stuff just really can pop out at you in in a way it doesn't that if, if you've been inside it sort of for, for a really yeah. long time do you have a Sort of getting de- de- delving deep into technical things now. Just you know, I'm a I'm on a stream of consciousness of stuff that interests me. <laughs> um, do you have a process that you do every time? So if you use, um, I don't know if people can hear that. My the, the house I live on is a building site at the moment, so diggers go past <laughs> routinely. <laughs> um, do you have a so you pull a track in? Artist sends you a track, a WAV mm-hmm. file, and you pull it in. Do you have a, a sort of a set routine of things that you're listening out for at the first instance and like a goal that you're aiming for? Well, obviously the goal is preparing it for the outside world, but I'm interested in how you get from what they've sent you to that. Yeah, it, yeah. to be honest, it, it's different with every project. Okay. Um, some people will get in touch and say, here, here are the mixes, I'm not sure about this. Uh, yeah, do you think the bass needs to be down? Do you think it's too bright? What do you think to this aspect? Um, so then I'll have a listen, um, and obviously, well, it's maybe it's not obvious, but I've got my room set up to be super flat. My monitors are a really amazing sort of um, specs for mastering. So um, I'll listen in my room, and then and then sort of get get back in touch, and we can discuss changes to the mix. Um, but then someone else will get in touch and say here's my project it's totally finished do you think and uh, and we won't there won't be any back and forth um mm. and changing the mix and stuff so yeah so it does um, it really does vary um per track this is yeah. a i feel a bit mean asking this question but it's from a personally i i mean i've heard stuff that you've mastered and i've heard stuff that has been mastered and it's I mean, the, the the difference is unbelievable. Like, it really is warranted. But a lot of people will want to know, uh, it, perhaps just in your opinion, how the mastering process is still relevant with so much... Uh, well, so many, say, like, plugins that, prote- that, that pertain to, to offer mastering without much effort on the, on the sort of mix engineer's part. Um, mm. How would you describe your... Well, what's your thoughts on sort of that kind of stuff and, and how mastering fits into that or analog mastering like you're doing? Yeah. Um, I guess in regards to, yeah, there's some, some software which maybe we won't mention any brand name <laughs> today, but um, yeah, there are some sort of automatic mastering uh, bundles and stuff like that, um, which I think, um, yeah, it, it's difficult. I think, I mean, in one sense, it's great that it's so much more accessible to people because I grew up <laughs> recording on a four-track cassette player, believe it or not, <laughs> and um, before USB interfaces and all that stuff. So 
I mean, I've just seen this explosion in accessibility for, for people. So, I mean, I think there's, it's great that these plugins exist so that people can, can get, you know, a decent sound in their bedroom. Um, and, and there's been famous songs that have been made that way, you know. Uh, but yeah, I think the automatic thing just doesn't work because every piece of music is different. So, so I think really need to listen really carefully um, and, and do a, like a bespoke approach to, to every, every single song. I, I mean, I, I love that. And something that I find it's really interesting that you haven't even touched on yet is, is gear, which we will talk about later on. But, um, you know, presumably, not even presumably, the, the, the fact is that running through analog gear will add sort of depth and warmth that um, can be modelled to an extent, but obviously nothing's ever going to emulate the, nothing's going to beat the real thing, essentially. Um, you know, if you've got, sort of tubes and um transistors and things that the, the audio is running through that they are going to do what they do and um you can't you know no plugin can can sort of actually copy it you know yeah it's something that's uh yeah i try not to be too um what's the word i try not to convince myself too much of my <laughs> my own my own sort of methods because I want to be open to to everything, and and plugins do an amazing job. People ask me quite a lot about my physical outboard gear, and I and I do say that you can still do really good mixing and mastering with with plugins. They sound they, some of them are amazing now, um, but they're different. So I love analog gear. I love the way it sounds. I love working with it. Um, I love. Um, yeah, actually being able to physically touch, touch the gear and stuff. So for me, I, I love working this way. I think that's sort of brought it round to why, I mean, I've said it in the introduction, I will have said it in the introduction to this, but that's why we're here chatting on a, on a podcast about the 60s is some of the analog gear that you've got and the mentality that you've got towards producing uh producing in the sense of like your output <laughs> um, <laughs> producing uh high quality mastering mastered tracks uh is very reminiscent of like analog and, and outboard and stuff and i think that's you know that's why we're why we're here chatting about it on this particular podcast and we'll get onto the to gear a little bit later as i say um yeah. one, wonder if uh well could you just describe the room that you're in i can see a bit of it but if you um you say your room is tailored to making a nice sound, what what does that you know what does that mean in reality? Um, yeah, so it just means I've got a lot of acoustic treatment uh, up around the walls. I mean, you can probably see on our little video chat. I've got the, the back wall behind me. I've got loads of panels up, um, and you won't be able to see uh, around the sides and in, in front of me. I've sort of just got panels everywhere. I've got some bass traps, which are big. Uh, big corner things to uh, to stop the bass uh, frequencies building up in the corners of the room. Um, so basically, it's just been tailored to uh, yeah to sound as flat as the room can be. So um, so there's, the sound isn't bouncing around off the walls and and sort of create any sort of reverbs and or echoes and stuff like that. What's the um 
what's the building called that you're in? I'm trying to picture, obviously we're both from Leeds and I'm trying to picture where it is. I've seen the address, but I can't picture what the building looks like. Is it an old warehouse or a factory or something? Uh, yeah, it's an old mill. It's Mabgate Mills. So ah, it's an yes. old mill. Um, so I'm in a section here which has about 10 uh, production rooms in it. And, and they've all been sort of acoustically treated so yeah, so I've got one wall that's got some nice, a nice old brick, brick feature on it, which is pretty cool. Um, but all the windows have been boarded up and soundproofed and treated. So yeah, I am in a windowless room sort of eight hours a day, <laughs> which uh, yeah, it can get a bit, uh, yeah, a bit dark during the winter. I, I know the feeling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You've got a bit of natural light in your studio. There, I so. do, yeah. But I still have to put the long johns on in the winter occasionally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Water, spend 20 minutes warming my fingers up before I do any sessions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Luckily, all, all the valves in all my gear keep keep the room pretty toasty once uh, once they get going. So that's that's uh, that's that's one good reason to choose the valve. Yeah. <laughs> just for warmth yeah uh, yeah just yeah. keep warm <laughs> um could you talk a bit about how you how you got to this point so you um i read on your website you sort of started playing guitar quite early on um, yeah. and then when did that sort of turn into an interest in the recording process and how did that sort of come about yeah so i i had my first guitar i think i was 13 um and yeah just a, i was just a, obsessed with guitar and music and guitar music um and when i was so when i was 16 instead of doing a levels um a college near me was running a btech in music production um and because i was just yeah totally obsessed i sort of begged my parents that if i could do that instead of doing like a maths uh, and a level and stuff like that and and they let me go for it um and it was yeah an amazing two-year course um we did we recorded like a school choir we recorded beatboxes like a rock band and we just had a ton of hands-on experience uh, recording and, and mixing bands and stuff what um, um did you have a particular style of music you were interested in at that point that you kind of were you writing uh, as an artist at that stage? Yeah, I, I was just into anything guitar related. Um, so I, I quite liked acoustic stuff, but um, I was into like my heavier rock and stuff as well, as as was the sort of popular scene at the time, yeah. uh, the 90s. Um, so uh, yeah, so yeah, guitar stuff was my, my big thing really. Um, and yeah, I was also like quite into uh yes like 60s psych uh and stuff like that as well so then from that course how um what's the journey between sort of i guess being trained in in uh music production and having a sort of keen interest in it in it oh, actually while i'm thinking about it you mentioned um having a four track at one stage um, yeah what so is it a Tascam? Yeah, uh, no, I think it was a Fostex. Oh, Fostex, that's the one. Yeah. 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 There's um, It seems to be a bit of a rite of passage among yeah. uh, professional audio people that they've had some sort of tape machine at one stage or another. It's, it's, yeah. Uh, 
you you fit into it perfectly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's partly due to my age. This this is this is showing my age. I bought, <laughs> I bought my first re- recording device was a cassette recorder from the back of the newspaper That's and the amazing. classifieds at the back of the newspaper, which kids now just would have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think I bought that while when I started doing this course. Oh, cool. College, so I was like desperate to be able to, you know, come home and still be able to work on stuff. So yeah, plugging my electric guitar straight into the uh, cassette four track and, uh, you know, recording just awful guitar, twiddly guitar. <laughs> I was learning. Do you think that it seems like there's a pattern to me of um, sort of professional audio people now who have had a experience like you've just described um, and that sort of informs the, the path that they've taken later down the line because there's something, you know, there must be something amazing as a kid just doing that. I mean, I, I, uh, I can, my equivalent, which is not the equivalent at all, <laughs> is those little red um, tape players. Do you remember those that kids used to have little plastic tape players? Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm recording on that, which is not the same because I, you know, I, I came to sort of wanting to get involved in, in music recording a bit later on. Um, but I think there's something magical about that. The fact that you can push a button on a thing with, with batteries and it, it records your voice. And that, yeah. mu- like, did, that must have informed sort of the, the way that you approach things now, even if it's not majorly, but just sort of sowed a seed of it. Yeah, in fact, I've not even... It- I've not really thought about it in that way, but yeah, I guess like my first experience was hands-on stuff where you're turning, actually turning dials and stuff. So uh, yeah, Compute, having a computer at home that you could record on was was not even an option at, at that point. Um, it, I think it was starting to be, but it was really expensive and you had to sort of install the sound card into the motherboard there was no like usb plug and play type stuff but yeah i guess my first experience was a physical having something (laughs) what um what were you recording with at college was it a similar thing oh no it it was we had a big uh soundcraft ghost Mm. uh 24 channel eight burst thing with uh an apple mac um uh, I don't know if you'll remember them, the huge, big sort of round back screens with, I think they had like a translucent colour on them. Yeah, I was going to say, I do remember those. They yeah. were cool. <laughs> uh, and that was running Pro Tools, which oh, nice. it must have been like Pro Tools version one or two at that point. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we had a yeah big desk with some outboard gear, which was all a bit, a bit, yeah, I had no idea what any of it did at that point. <laughs> Um, but going into Pro Tools, which, which was sort of amazing to for the first, to be the first thing I learned on. Mm. So where 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 was this where you were growing up? So I grew up near Lincoln, um, okay. and, and this was at, yeah a college near there. And then what? Um, how, how did the move to Leeds come about? Uh, just for uni. So okay. I, yeah, I finished the course, and it was sort of. You, you know look, looking to go to uni um yeah it was a bit of a random pick I guess I, I'd, I'd looked at a few courses um 
to come to the open day at Leeds and it looks and it you know it's pretty impressive the studios at the time mm-hmm. and yeah I applied for a couple more I applied for another one where a couple of my mates were going but I just preferred the look of the Leeds course and studios is that Leeds University as opposed to the Met or was it that it was yeah so at the time it was the Met and the course okay. I- it was split between the Met and the Music College. Because the Met, I, can't, I don't remember what it's called now. They've recently changed names, haven't they? Yeah. Uh, Beck, I can't. It's not, is it Leeds Beckett now? That, oh, yeah, that's the one. So yeah. that's where um, sort of reg, regular listeners of the podcast might <laughs> <laughs> remember in episode two, I spoke to Ken Scott. So that's where Ken Scott does his guest lecturing. Um, okay. So that may have been slightly after you that he started slightly after you i think it's fairly recent the, the fact that he's started there the last few years okay, um, yeah. so um yeah the studios are at the met oh, I keep calling it the met now they'll tell me off at leeds beckett yeah. um, <laughs> they're incredible i've recorded there a few times and they're just unbelievable big sort of hub of of amazing amazingly kitted out studios <laughs> yeah uh, I've not been back for, for years, actually, to check them out. I know they've, I mean, as I was leaving, they were getting a complete overhaul. And then okay. I know they've been redone a couple of times in the uh, nearly 20 years since I was there. Um, so then were you sort of uh, consciously out there looking for, well, did you want to sort of work as a as a studio engineer at that point or... I know you've done some live work. What was your sort of aim to, once you'd finished sort of college? What were you, or were you focusing on writing at that stage? Yeah, I was doing a bit of both. I mean, I was always playing music and writing and, and wanting to gig and stuff like that all, all through my uni course. Um, um, so, yeah, I was sort of doing a bit of both. It, I mean, it was a lot harder to set up a, your own studio back then. Um so it, that wasn't really much of an option for me, sort of as a eight, um, yeah, tw- twenty year old coming out of uni. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was just working as a, a sound engineer, um, and then alongside that, I was also starting to play gigs um, and stuff like that. Um, I mean, Leeds has got a pretty thriving music scene. Um, I mean, yeah. there's there's a lot of big bands have come out of Leeds. Um, over a lot of the a lot of the years not even just recently um mm. you know I'm, I, I, i've been in leeds for 10 years so i don't yeah. know much about the scene um previous to that but i know there was a lot more venues was it i guess there's a lot more venues than there was now there's a lot of um there was a lot of talk about a few quite well-known venues that the um kaiser chiefs guys who were called parva at that point i think um used to play and some some good venues that have disappeared but yeah, Leeds has always had a pretty thriving scene, hasn't it? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, so then, when did your sort of interest in mastering come about? Yeah. So th- so that was a little. That came a bit later. Um, so I'd sort of um, I, I stopped actually doing live sound engineering for for a while, um, just because it was all I was just working every night. Uh, like start starting at tea time and finishing late and I, I just kept missing like friends and and just 
not having a social life and, and stuff like that. So, and, and I was starting to pick up more gigs as well along, along this time. So, um, yeah, so I was gigging for a good few years uh, until we sort of, sort of met a, a group of other musicians who are now, you know, some of my best mates uh, and we've been hanging out and playing music together for 20 odd years. And we were all sort of gigging, similar gigs, doing our home recordings and stuff like that. And one day I just decided that I should start a label for all these like releases that were happening. Because um, I, I just thought, you know, some of my mates were making amazing music and, and we all had a sort of similar ethos, I guess, like a DIY in, independent sort of thing. So yeah, so we started up a, a little record label, which, which sort of grew. You know, it never got massive, but you know, it, it was it was doing okay. So this is Gin House Records. Yeah, yeah, um, and and we were sort of recording everything um, at home, mostly uh, sort of a home studio setup uh, with some old ribbon mics and trying to record in like a very live way. Um. And then, because I had the computer and the recording device, it sort of all fell on me to, to, to then mix it <laughs> and finish them off. And people would just go, hey, can we get that the finished CD or, you know, uh, to upload to MySpace or <laughs> you know, whatever it was at that point. Um, so, yeah, it just sort of fell on me. But I really enjoyed it as well. I, I really liked getting into the mixing, balancing stuff and getting everything to sound right. Um and so, yeah, I just started reading up on, on mastering and, and just figuring out how we could get it to sound as good as, as possible. Yeah. I'm, I'm reading a, a book at the minute on Phil Spector um, for... Um, oh, yeah. Just for my own amusement, but also I want to do a, an episode of the podcast on, um, on Phil Spector. And yeah. he's just set up um, Phil's records. Um, oh, okay. Well, I'd say just it's about about four or five chapters ago, so it's a little while ago. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and uh, it seems to be that's quite a, you know, the setting up your own label is is was a thing then. That's what people did. Um, yeah, and then I guess you know, as as a kid growing up in the music industry, it was all about the majors, and you know, yeah. In, yeah. indie labels didn't really exist. And then now we're at a, a time again where sort of putting out your own music or other people's music is an option again. Um, yeah. What, um, and I, I love the idea that you, you had a label that you were recording and involved in that process too. You're not just a label in the sense that you put the music out, you know, you're actually an, an old school label <laughs> doing it all yeah. in house. That's amazing. Yeah. And we'd all often as well, just play on each other's releases as well so we'd all just sort of hang out and uh one band would go oh can you just come in and just just yeah just get grab your guitar and come in and just play a bit on this and stuff so yeah it was really very cool and and we were sort of it was just at that just at the that weird time when people were starting to go actually yeah we don't need we don't need like sony anymore we can just record something and we can upload it to the internet and and if it if it sells, we get any money that comes, and we control where it goes and stuff. So yeah, it was sort of a, a bit of a 
yeah cool time to do it as well yeah i love the the idea of people making decisions to to do things for themselves i think is really important you know there's a, a a healthy music scene um you know be it in leeds or now that it's sort of the wider world now we're all there we're all an Instagram community in a sense, aren't we? <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. You need people like that to sort of step outside the comfort zone and go, do you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna start a label. Why why am I waiting around for people to to sort of sign me to their label and you know, I'll just do it myself. And then I love that yeah. and it's sort of sowed I'm using the same expression again, but sown the seeds of your sort of a I, I find it strange being called like musicians have to be entrepreneurial, but we, we kind of are in a sense. And, you know, obviously you've, yeah. um, you've done it again by, by sort of building a, a mastering studio that you're, you're focusing on. Um, but I guess you probably learned a lot of lessons starting that label and going through those motions. Yeah, definitely. It was, um, yeah, I, I just, yeah, a, a great learning curve. Um, and, yeah, so part of that was uh, it It sort of made me decide that, yeah, I really I love working on music. And so I started building up my home studio slowly. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, just thought, yeah, we'll buy an extra bit of gear, a, a, an outboard compressor or something like that, because then I might be able to get this master sounding a bit better. And, and then as well, during that time, I started looking around for much information as I could. And there wasn't anywhere near as much as there is now. You know, this is 10 years ago. Um, so I, start, I went to a couple of courses at, at sort of studios um, that were running like a weekend mastering course uh, or a single day course and stuff like that. Hmm. Just because I, I wanted to soak up as much as I could. That's interesting as well because uh, you're actually visiting these places physically and going there. Yeah, um, yeah. And there's something to be said for that. I mean, a lot of them, um, yeah, I'm guilty of this as an next person. You just sit and watch YouTube and, you know, yeah. um, you know, find, get yourself in, in muddles, <laughs> just searching around down all of, all of the, uh, the top 10 tips and tricks on various yeah. like, snazzy YouTube channels. Yeah. Um, and I like the idea that, of you know going and phys- visiting a physical studio and again just sort of soaking that environment up and and uh, you can't beat that can you yeah i mean it, it's probably a bit as well uh just a symptom of of the the time there, there wasn't youtube channels full of information like that at the time um and if there had been maybe i would have just sat <laughs> watched all the videos and not left my house but yeah, there just wasn't. Um, I think, yeah, I don't think Bob Katz, who is is the the guy in mastering, he he's literally written the book on mastering, <laughs> uh, and it's in its third edition. Wow. I, I don't think his book was even out at that point, um, or it was very recent. So yeah, so there wasn't, there just wasn't the information that out there that there was now. So so yeah, it really was like. Uh, not my only option, but it was like, yeah, yeah, pretty, pretty high up on the on the list. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, I'm interested to um, 
Oh, this is a question. I'm, I'm hesitating because I had, as while you were talking, I was like, yeah, I'm going to ask that question then. I couldn't think of it. Um, do you remember the first bit of gear that you bought as Outboard where you were like, this is a this is a heavy piece of gear now. Like, I'm I'm in this. <laughs> and, and that, like, I can picture the first thing, the first sort of thousand pounds that I spent was on some valve, out, like valve preamps that were oh, okay. my red 47s. And yeah. I remember getting the delivery of them and like my heart was racing. Was like, yeah. A thousand pounds. Like now, thousand yeah. pounds is nothing, you know, just oh. don't even think about it. Yeah. You just, um, I can remember like sending the money over um, on PayPal or whatever and just thinking, like, yeah. oh, I've just spent a thousand pounds and I've yeah. got like this box with a green front and yeah. chicken head dials and I was just you know my I was absolutely buzzing for weeks. <laughs> yeah, I can tell from the yeah really <laughs> animated all of a sudden. <laughs> so what um, would, do you remember yours? I don't know if I had like a single piece. I, I guess like the first like I guess when I stepped up my interface I think I started with an M-Box little Pro Tools um Two two channel M box that was USB, but you had to, you had to buy Pro Tools with it. It was back back in those those days. Um, and then I stepped up to a, like an eight channel Focusrite thing um, that was yeah pre- pretty pretty expensive for me at the time. Anyway, it was I don't I don't know if it was quite a thousand pounds, but yeah, it was a lot of money for for a, a skint young musician to spend yeah. on on that so i guess that was that was a yeah that was probably a hefty one until i started buying like i guess mastering grade stuff but that was a a long time from on from that where i sort of really really thought it all over and (laughs) and i knew exactly what gear i needed to get and all that sort of stuff so yeah You've got a. Uh, it's not just outboard viewer. You've got a pretty tidy microphone collection as well, haven't you? Which is uh, quite nice. <laughs> yeah, I have. Yeah, I. Um, yeah, I uh, just used some mics at various studios over the years when I've gone to record, and then, um, yeah, at one point I thought, do you know what? I want to record my next album at home, and just sort of take my time with it as much as I love going into the studio, sometimes I find you can book a week and then that week might you might just not be feeling it or you've got a bit of a cold or what whatever happens. Just thought, you know, next time I'm gonna just walk out on like my dream mic and then it's set up at home whenever I'm really feeling in the mood. Mm. Lord, and do it. So yeah, so I did start splashing out on mics. Uh, <laughs> a little bit so yeah i think that's where a lot of people are right now you know with interfaces at home and especially as a perhaps a guitarist or a singer and you know as like a songwriter it's quite an easy um small setup to have you know you you buy a nice microphone and maybe guitar a mic for your guitar amp or just plug straight in and use you can you know use some of some plugins and things to to emulate that stuff but it's yeah. a relatively small investment that you only need to make once. Mm. Um, you know, obviously, drums is a slightly different kettle of fish, but um, yeah. yeah, it's a it's it's where I can imagine a lot of people sitting at listening to this podcast will be in that same position. Um, yeah. What was that 
what was that dream vocal mic? Oh, it was a 70s U87. Wow, very a nice. <laughs> U87, yeah, not the modern AI ones. I wanted I wanted the 70s P48 version. Um, Do you still have it now? Yeah, I still have it. Yeah, yeah, I'm not letting that go now. <laughs> I have sort of thought about it occasionally because um, I've got, you know, a, a pretty hefty um, amount of cash tied up in in a couple of mics that, that have been sat in their boxes for, for quite a <laughs> while. Um, but music's my life, really, you know, so I'm, I'm going to use it at some point and I'm, yes, I'd be so, so glad that I've kept it when... When it comes oh, recording, absolutely! You know? Yeah, I mean, you shouldn't be so good at mastering if you if you wanted to get <laughs> your, your mics out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember um, um, doing some drum tracking for you, and you brought some. Uh, was it Neumann KM one eighty fours over? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, they just blew my mind. I I I'd never used those before. I'm, I, I mean, I'm trying to think. I may well have used them in studios that I'd worked in in the past, but yeah. most of the time if I remember correctly, studios had coals yeah. and I'd been using ribbons as overhead, as stereo overheads. And I still do. And I have a coals mm. as a mono overhead. Um, and the, the sort of, I mean, no, by no means an equivalent, but sort of modern sounding um, small diaphragm condensers. I was using Rode NT5s, which were kind of nice mics. Yeah. And, um, a lot of people use um, 414s for overheads yeah. too, which, yeah. if I'm honest, I'd never got on with. But as soon as you brought those Neumanns round, it, they just blew my socks off. They were incredible. <laughs> you know, yeah. and, um, every every cliche you want to use to describe a microphone, it was them. <laughs> they were just, yeah. they, they were beautiful. Yeah, they they are amazing. I bought them those originally for for guitar for recording. Uh, like a stereo pair on an acoustic steel string um, and I've used them on sort of violins and even upright bass mm. they sound really good on to catch the fingerboard they sound phenomenal I can imagine because they had I mean it's just nerdy talk now isn't it but they yeah. had quite <laughs> yeah. they had a, a bit of richness in the sort of lower mids as well which I, is something i quite like in overheads that's one of the things i didn't get on with with the 414s when they were too bright for me yeah um, that's probably why i like ribbons as overheads but they they seem to capture that sort of um ribbon warmth but also have a modern you know mo cut it in the modern sense as well which you know a ribbons tend to have a you know that sort of muted um muted sound to them which doesn't often work in a in a sort of modern setting yeah um, i can imagine they sound great on acoustic bass and acoustic guitar i imagine too yeah yeah really good just sort of the detail they just get all the detail in sort of the the, the high mids and the mids um and and for a size they pick up a, a crazy amount of bass for a small diaphragm uh and so it's yeah they're great Okay, so I really hope you enjoyed that conversation. Um, obviously, that's just the first part, and the second part will be coming along in two weeks' time, and we really do delve into 
uh, the setup that Ben's got there, and he talks us through each of the parts of his chain and explains how he uses them, which uh, was just such a brilliant thing to discuss with Ben. Um, I would urge you to go and check out what he does. It's Rare Tone Mastering. So that's Rare Tone is all one word, R-A-R-E-T-O-N-E. Uh, he has an Instagram. So if you follow me on Instagram at All You Need Is Drums, then I'll have posted about it with the, along with this podcast. Um, we'll talk, also talk about this in the next episode, but Ben offers something called Free Mastering Mondays, where every Monday he gives a, up his time to master records for free. Um, which is such an incredible thing to do, especially at the moment when a lot of musicians have been hit extremely hard by uh, sort of COVID. And that doesn't stop creativity. It doesn't stop you making music, but it might influence some of the decision-making you, you do based on money. And the fact that Ben is willing to give up his time for nothing to sort of help creativity keep flowing is amazing. He, he's just such a... A fabulous gesture so go and check that out and if you want to get something mastered by ben his i mean his rates are stupidly reasonable anyway and he's incredible <laughs> so just go and get it done anyway um anyway you'll hear us talking about more about that in the next episode um so that just leaves me to say if you'd like to get in touch with me my email address is joe at all you need is drums uh, you can visit my website all you need is drums.com for more information about the isolated drums the beatles isolated drums i send out um, which incidentally is what you hear uh, after my before and after my waffles. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's all you need is drums.com and I'm on Instagram at all you need is drums. Um, and I would like to give a huge thank you to Joe Kane for the intro and outro music he does for me uh, or he made for me. And to my good friend David Henshaw for the artwork that he supplies for me every two weeks. Um, I hope you all have a fantastic couple of weeks and I look forward to speaking to you again in two weeks' time. All right, goodbye. Goodbye.